Hope you all are doing well. Um, I have to have coffee for the second service. I'm sorry. All right. So um, today we are going to be in the doctrine of creation. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We will get there soon. Um, and I'm gonna, we're going to look at a little bit different way. We're not going to go day one, day two, day three, and look at what he did. Uh, instead, I'm going to kind of take a bigger approach to Genesis chapter 1 um, before we, in a different way. And we're actually planning on, in the future, going through the first 12 chapters of Genesis anyway. So we'll do more of a, of a commentary kind of walk through it and, and when we do that. But today, we're just doing the doctrine of creation, so I'm wanting to do something bigger. By the way, the reason why I'm excited about doing the first 12 chapters of Genesis is everything that relates to life, everything that relates to you and I, any question you have can be answered in the first 12 chapters of Genesis. Anything and everything. Um, where did sin come from? What's the point of marriage? So many things um, are right there in those first 12 chapters. And if we can understand that, really, we can understand everything. The, the gospel is in, is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the very first time. Anyway, that's just way side note. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to be in uh, the doctrine of creation today. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. I, uh, I thank you for um, each doctrine that we've studied, and I thank you for this one particularly as we look at it today, that uh, the truth is that because you've created everything, you're the Lord over everything. And so I pray that as we study this, Lord, that um, you would help me, that you would come now for those who realize that they're in desperate need of you to speak, and even for those who may not understand that they're in desperate need of you to speak through your word, that um, you would come and do that, that you would grant us favor by the power of the Spirit in teaching us and leading us into truth. And as we learn these things, also, Lord, um, giving us a deep love for Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. Help us understand that everything we study should be understood in light of the cross, even the doctrine of creation. Be with me now, and, and I pray that you would just help me um, speak with precision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The doctrine of creation. John Calvin said that creation is the theater, and in the South we say theater, not theater. Um, we say theater of God's glory. It is the place where all of God's go- glory can be visually seen. As a matter of fact, Romans 1, um, well, Psalm 19 says, the heaven declare, declares the glory of God. And so we can see in creation the glory of God. Romans 1 tells us that because all of creation is displaying to us the glory of God, that now, since we have a knowledge of the glory of God, that's for believers and unbelievers, people that know Jesus and people who have never heard of Jesus, they can understand that there's a God that exists who deserves all the glory. There's an awakening or a knowledge of their heart that there is a God. Therefore, they're under need to understand who he is and repent of their sin. Um, now, as we're talking about creation, th- there's another guy I read in commentary. He said that creation is neither to be worshipped, so it shouldn't be elevated too high, nor is it to be abused. It shouldn't be um, licentiously or sinfully in- involved in to-, to some large degree. So creation um, is the theater of God's glory. Now, here's the, here's the tricky part for me today. Today, since we're talking about creation, it's going to involve science. And I am not a science guy. And so... 
We, I took two science classes in college because they made me, and I did it in 1992, astronomy, and I did the last one at the very end of my college career. Um, I stood in line to get the two-week biology of water class at Charleston Southern and did it in January for two weeks. All I did was memorize a bunch of stuff that they showed us under a microscope. I have no idea what it was, and I was done because I was a religion major, and I didn't have to study a lot of science. And so I, although I've been reading some scientific things this work, I've just praying, been praying, Lord, please, please, God, help me speak with some kind of scientific eloquence because I know probably y'all are science people and um, you want to, you know, understand what I'm saying and, and, and really believe that, that, that I know what I'm talking about. So um, I do, and it took me a while, and I have really, really worked hard to try to get it done. But anyway, we're looking at some scientific stuff today. So here's probably what's going to happen. Today you're going to have your, your, your appetite wet for, for some new information, you're probably going to say, oh, that's something I want to study. That's something I want to know, know more. Hopefully, we'll raise a lot of questions. Hopefully, I'll answer some of those questions. Um, but more importantly, the main goal, since creation is the theater of God's glory, the main goal of today is that we would see that, even if just in some impulses or in some small amounts, that we would begin to see and take in and understand God's glory in such a way that our hearts now as we see that glory, want to make much of God. And so as we study creation, the goal is that your heart would be set aflame for the glory of God and that you would want to make much of him through your life. So that's that's the goal. So why why did God create? Why did God create? The main reason, the, the primary reason of all reasons of why God created was for his own glory. He wanted us to know who he is, enjoy him, um, and for his own glory, he gives us creation so that we can know him and live and understand who he is. What can we say about his creation if it's for his glory? I think one of the primary things that we can say is kind of the, the reverb that, or the, the, the echo throughout Genesis chapter 1. And day 1, yada-da, and it was good. Day 2, yada-da, and it was good. And it's good, and it's good. And even day 6, it was very good. And so we know... Something that we can say about creation is that since God did it, and over and over it's telling us that it was good, that p- creation is and, and was created perfectly. It was good. Now, the fall certainly has, has changed some of those things, but creation is perfect for us. It's good. Um, and when we say good, it's not just kind of like ho-hum good, like, hey, how's that cheeseburger? It's good. I mean, when we're talking about creation, when God says it's good, it means it's unbelievably perfect. So... Um, what I want to do before we dive into Genesis chapter 1 is, this is the, <laughs> this is the science section, and I'm going to do my best. Uh, the be- what I want to do here is to give some preliminary comments before we jump into Genesis 1. I think these things are helpful to discuss about talking about creation and understanding creation and how to study creation inside the text of Genesis 1. I think it's very good to kind of have these preliminary comments out of the way so when we're going into Genesis chapter 1, you can know what we're going to be talking about and what we think. Um, the first one, the first preliminary uh, comment is this, um, is that there is no need to create a conflict between Christianity or what Christ- Christianity's view is on creation and science. There's no need to create this conflict. This is really a recent creation um, in the Enlightenment period, sometime around the uh, 1700s or so. Uh, the Enlightenment came and skepticism came, and then all of a sudden, where for thousands of years, 
there's an understanding that science is under God and that they go hand in glove since God created the concept of science, that science is not in, at odds with, with Christianity or the, the biblical view of creation, and they go hand in hand together. And then all of a sudden, in the Enlightenment period, science kind of belted out here and started saying, well, there's things that we see in creation that don't match uh, what we see in the Bible, it seems to be from carbon dating, millions and millions of year old, and what about the dinosaurs? And da, da, da. And so all of a sudden, science and creation came, became at odds at one another, and all of a sudden, Christians felt the need to try to prove the Bible um, and what we believe about creation against what secular scientists were saying. And that, there's no need to do that, um, as, because um, God created science. God created everything, and so everything still falls under what God has done. John Salehammer, just a renowned uh, scholar from the old te- that studies the Old Testament, this is what he said. We should be guided by what the text says, not by attempts to reconcile the text with the ever-changing views of modern science. Um, science will continually change in its understanding of things, but the text still remains the same. And so because of that, we need to submit ourselves under the text of Scripture, not the ever-changing views of modern science. So there, there's no reason to cl- create this conflict and no reason to actually run away from those who might want to create the, the conflict. We, we, have, we have nothing to run away from. We, we have God, okay? Um, the second one is this. And this one, whenever I heard this, might be the most important one that you hear today. Um, it's this. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. It's not. Um, we don't have to feel compelled to explain things in the, crea- in the creation um, account and from Genesis 1 if, from science, they seem to say things like, well, what about this? What about this? Well, here's the point. Um, the Bible was written not as a scientific textbook. Instead, it's a, it's a book about God, not about science. And the, the reason why the writers wrote was not so that you could study astronomy. The reason why the writers wrote is so that you could understand God and know how to be saved. And know how to know him and be saved by him. Augustine, he lived you know, 1,500, years ago. He said this, <clears throat> The Bible is not a scientific textbook seeking to answer the ever-changing inquiries of science, but rather a theological, that just means about God, textbook, seeking to reveal God to us um, and by the means by which God saves. That's the point of the Bible. And so we don't need to try to import scientific textbook um, feelings and emotions and trying to make the Bible a scientific textbook because it's not. The next uh, preliminary uh, thing that we need to talk about is that there are some views of creation that are inconsistent with Scripture. There are some views that are inconsistent with Scripture. We want to identify those as we're going through this so that when I go through Genesis 1, you can know what we are, which perspective we're coming from. The first view is this. Um, that's inconsistent with Scripture is secular theories. Theories are just uh, a guess, a a hypothesis on how the creation happened. Any secular theory, they don't don't, um, accord with Scripture because these theories do not see an infinite personal God as responsible for creating the universe. They're secular, as in they don't believe in God. And so anything that's not holding to an infinite personal personal God creating, they're... Um, not congruent, they're inconsistent with Scripture, and we say we don't believe those. Um, the next one is theistic evolution, and this is the idea that takes the, the idea of evolution but still tries to take the belief of God and say, well, we believe in theistic evolution, that 
in some way, there's a God that created, but we still want to hold to these evolutionistic um, theories of which we think seem to make sense as we look at science. Um, But there's one problem with that. And I'll just, I'll read what I think is the main problem um, according to the scientists that I read this week. They said, uh, the main problem that proceeds from theistic evolution is that it's explained still by random mutation of living things. Um, They have three basic crucial points of God's participation in creation, which is he created the matter at the beginning, he created the simplest life form, and he created man. But the rest of it is through random occurrences. Um, It says the fundamental difference between the biblical view of creation, which is what I would say I would hold, um, versus the theistic evolution, is that the driving force of the development of new species is randomness. So theistic evolution still holds that the driving force of of development of new species is still randomness, where we would say, um, my view of God and how... Um, thoughtful he is about the way that he creates is that it's not random. Everything he does is with purpose. And so we can't hold to that. Um, The next one would be Darwinism. This is another inconsistent. Of course, this is 100 and something years old. Um, They believe in evolution on macro levels. Let me explain macro evolution and micro evolution. Macro evolution is um, that man evolves, but as um, he evolves, he's evolving in species changes. So literally, animals kind of become different animals and other animals become different animals until you get to humans. Microevolution is that the, inside of a species, there might be some things that evolved. And we, we know this is true. Like, all of a sudden, we're like, what is this appendix for? Why do I even have this thing? I don't want it. Take it out. Like, whatever. And I'm going to still be okay. Like, that's the idea. That there used to be, it seems to be, some purpose in the appendix. I have no idea. But now you can take it out and you can live. So the body and somehow evolved to where it's not necessary to have that. And they're saying, well, perhaps it used to be necessary. That's microevolution. So that there's evolving in our bodies, but we're not like still like jumping to a new species where we're brand new people now. We're like humans, you know, 2.0 or something. Um, So we don't believe in macroevolution. We believe in microevolution. And so, by the way, this is just a side note, but those that hold to uh, Darwinism hold to the belief of what's called survival of the fittest. Um, they call it natural selection, which is just um, those who are the strongest should be the ones that should allow to go. Those are the weakest. It's actually right that they fall out because the best thing is that we have the strongest go. And if there's someone that's truly a Darwinian, the most consistent way that they can live their life, the most logical way that they can live their life is never help someone that's weak or poor. Um, if they do, they're inconsistent. If they, someone that's weak, that's... the their worldview should be, you need to die out so that the strongest can survive. And so, who does that? No one does that. And so they, they um, go against themselves. And, and another thing, this is just a second. Um, Marx, Karl Marx, Frederick Nietzsche, and um, Hitler all used natural selection to justify their wars. So, I mean, if you want to hop in that camp, and I don't, um, what we understand, Hitler wasn't a good guy. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about when it comes to preliminary comments is uh, not, we're going to move to something else, is not just the fact that we say there shouldn't be, uh, there shouldn't be a conflict between Christianity and science. There sh- we should know that the Bible is not a scientific textbook, and we should know that there are some views of creation that are inconsistent with Scripture. The fourth thing is that we need to talk about the age of earth. 
the age of earth is an open-handed issue. Um, <clears throat> open-handed, closed-handed are just you know, one way to state basically that says uh, there's beliefs that Christians can have and still be Christians, and there's belief that Christians, um, if they have, they're not a Christian. So a closed-hand um, belief is Jesus is the only way for salvation. You have to believe that or else you're not a Christian. We have to hold to certain beliefs that Christ's death on the cross is the way to be saved if you trust and believe in that. That's, that's a closed-hand um, belief. Open-hand is, you know, if I believe the earth was actually uh, young or old, that's open-hand. You can, you can believe either way and still be a Christian. Same with um, the end times, eschatology, whether you're a pre-millennial or post-millennial or pre-trib or post-trib. You can hold to any of those things and still be a Christian. So I think um, that you can be an old earth or a young earth and still be a Christian, and that's an open-handed issue. So we can get passionate, and I've seen some people that, that have gotten passionate. If you don't believe in 24 literal days, then you, how can you even believe in God? Um, you're not a Christian at all. This, this is not true. Um, there are ways that we can understand the Scripture um, and still believe in God and be, be a Christian. Now, I've got to make sure I say this. Op- when I say the age of the earth is open-handed, I do have one little caveat that I have to stick in there, and that's this, that um, we have to say the authority of Scripture must be maintained. I still say, well, the authority of Scripture has to be there. To me, that's a closed-handed issue. Um, I, don't ha- I don't feel the need to defend the, uh, the authority of Scripture. Jack did that a few weeks ago. I'm going to reference it here in just a second. But um, there's ways to understand the doctrine of creation, specifically the days and they be not 24 little hour days, or that the earth could still be old and you can still be a Christian. Here's two examples. Um, the first one is the, the, the word day. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, and it says on the first day, this Hebrew word day is yom. And yom can be uh, translated as day, but yom can also be loosely translated as in the days. So there's other places um, in, the, in the Old Testament where it's talking about the period that a king lived. And it says, in the days of this particular king. And this, this word days isn't meaning a 24-day. It means in the time period of which he lived. And so that it can be understood, if you go back to Genesis 1, in the days of which, of this particular day, this day that he created, it's not necessarily 24 hours. And, but this not necessarily, we don't know what. And so it could be that in these time periods that he created of what we're calling yoms, he created these particular things, and that could be more than a 24-hour period. And if it's more than a 24-hour period, and it's multiple years, even if it's a million years, or 10,000 years, or whatever, who knows, um, then that means after that happened, whenever it's turned into 24 little hour days, which of course we live in, then the earth could be old. Okay, I don't, I don't believe that. I, I do believe in literal 24-hour days. But I do understand where that text idea comes from. The second one is this. And this is actually from the word uh, in beginning. So you can look in Genesis 1 and then we're going to actually go into the text. But the Hebrew word right there, by the way, like there is a ton of stuff in verse 1. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like there are so many huge things in that first sentence when Moses wrote. I believe Moses wrote. It says, in the beginning. This word be- beginning in Hebrew, reshit. Um, 
does not mean ever in Hebrew. It does not ever mean throughout the entire Old Testament um, a beginning point. Instead, the word reshet always means in the Hebrew um, a period of beginning. So John Salehammer, back to the, our Hebrew scholar, John Salehammer says, in the Bible, the term reshet always refers to an extended yet indeterminate duration of time. So the beginning is not beginning point. The beginning is this indeterminate amount of time. This is the beginning. How long? We don't know. It's just the beginning. So it doesn't have to be like for us. All right, begin. Zero, zero, zero. Hit my thing. Now we're started. You know, it's not a stopwatch thing. It's, it's a different. He says, it's an indeterminate amount of time. It's a block of time which always precedes then an extended series of time periods which for us would be the six, day, six days of creation. So in the beginning, indeterminate amount of time, that word means after, it's going to do something, then after that it's going to follow a block of time periods, which would be for us the six days of creation. It is a time before time, the word beginning. The term does not refer to a point in time, but a period of duration of time. Now this is where it gets quite interesting. This is another way to understand an old earth. This particular word always means that indeterminate amount of time. So it could be, it just could be that the word beginning was in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. And when he did that, indeterminate amount of time, we have no idea how long. That could have been 10 days, 50 million years. We literally have no idea that he created the heavens and the earth. And then after he did that, um, you can see in verse two, the earth as he created it was, was without form. So it didn't have form. It was, the darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit's present, hovering over the face of the waters. So he creates this thing in this beginning, however long, it could be millions of years. And then after that time period begins what I believe the 24-hour days of creation. And if you notice, it says in verse 1, in the beginning God created, and then it doesn't use the word create anymore. It's always said, and God said, and God said, and God said. So because of that, John Salehammer says, that in this beginning, all things were created, and then the days are when he starts forming the things that he created and making the land inhabitable for day six, when humans can come in there, and now they can live in this day and this, and this earth that he's formed for them and, and survive. And so since that's the case, since this beginning could be such a long period of time, then it could be understood that the earth could have a really old existence. Now, um, I think that's quite interesting. I'm still trying to figure out what I believe. I still have always just held to a 24 literal hour day. Um, And I think that's where I still am right now. But this still, I think that the beginning, though it's a time period, was probably not 50 million years, but shorter. But it could be. I mean, we, we have to be real with what the word is and allow for that. So that's why I say, if you hold to an old earth, to me, it's just an open handed issue. Whatever you want to hold to. I don't think that. I think that it's perfectly possible because they say, well, the, the crea- there's, no, there's no fighting science. It's just old. Okay, then God created the earth old. <laughs> I mean, he created Adam old, right? Adam wasn't born as a baby and fed himself. He created Adam old. And if he created Adam old, he can create the earth old looking. He's allowed to do that. He can do whatever he wants. He's God. So that's just my view. He just created the old to be or old looking. He created it to look like it was millions of years old because that's what he wanted to do. To mess with the scientists, I don't know. Um, so that's, that's how I reconcile it, and I still hold to 24 literal hour days. That makes more sense to me in that you have days, because then you have 
this is the only reason why, is in day, I don't remember, three or four, when animals were created, um, if it was these long periods of time, animals generally don't live very long, right? Um, they, they live a little while and then they die. And so it just doesn't make sense to me for death to be in the creation order because death didn't enter until Genesis 3 when sin came. So animals dying doesn't make sense to me. Um, Grudem says, well, animals can die, no big deal. Um, it's not humans dying. Well, okay. Uh, whatever. We don't know. That's my whole point, is that it, it's an open-handed issue. But for us, um, we have to affirm that it's an open-handed issue and that God certainly did it. All right. That's all my preliminary stuff. Now we're actually going to look at Genesis 1. Um, and there's four things in this, in this Genesis 1 um, unpacking of creation, four observations that I want us to see. Um, and, and the first two are still from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 because there's so much there. So we have now in the beginning, this, this time period of beginning, God created bara. We're going to come back to that um, in just a second. But we want to zoom in on the word God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. So that's the first observation that we have to notice here in the account, uh, the account of creation, is that God is eternal. He did not have a beginning point he has always existed. In the beginning, God. He was there. He's always been there. So in this beginning of time, he was before time, because certainly time is something that's created as well. Everything that was created happened then. Concepts, immaterial, material, spiritual world, ideas, science, all those things. Even time was created. But before all that, forever was God. God is eternal. Now, I know that bakes your noodle, and it does mine too. Um, But we have to agree that the only person that can actually do this is God. And if he had a beginning point, then he's not God. Like God has to be the one that always exists. So God is eternal forever. So God created, he's always been. And when we see this in the beginning, God, the, the fourth word of the Bible, just right there, right there, eliminates any kind of atheistic view of creation. Any kind of view that says there is no God, Fourth word eliminates that idea. No, sorry. It has to be that God created. Now, I know what you're saying. You're using your book to back up what you're having to say. I don't have to use my book this particular week to back up what I have to say because five weeks ago, we've already talked about that this is God's words. Jack, if you want that, you can go back five weeks and listen to that sermon on iTunes. We've already talked about and established that these are God's words, that there is, that there is a God, he does exist, and these are his words Without question, we can trust that. We've already talked about that. So yes, I am, because I'm basing it on what we've been talking about over the last couple weeks. But that first word right there, that fourth word there, totally eliminates um, any ideas of atheistic views of creation. Now, as we're looking at this idea then of God creating, two kind of characteristics of God kind of bubble up to the surface for us to kind of be in awe of. And this is where we're starting to see, wow, this is glorious. This is an amazing thing. There's two things. These aren't on the screen. The first thing is that God is transcendent. God is transcendent. And this is just the teaching that God is much greater than creation. So I was talking with my children just this week. We were talking about creation. And um, we're saying, all right, so here's our little solar system. And maybe there's a whole bunch out there. But here's our, here's our ball of star, our, our, our star, our ball of wax here that we revolve around. We're the, there's nine little planets. And here we're the third one. And we, we revolve around here, and God has perfectly placed us so that we don't get too hot and we don't get too cold, um, but we can live and we can have food, etc. 
And then inside that, there's actually nine planets, but he chose to put us on this one, not the biggest one. I don't think it's the smallest one, but it's, it's medium size, or maybe it's not, whatever. Um, I'm not science. But we have these, these nine in this particular solar system. And then there's other solar systems that are inside of our galaxy. And then out, outside of this galaxy, there's not just like a few more galaxies. There's like millions of galaxies that the telescopes are realizing that look at all these galaxies and galaxies and galaxies all these things are absolutely huge and then we zoom back over here and we say well why is there one planet where there's people and then all of these other galaxies isn't that just a waste of space doesn't it seem crazy that there's that much space and here we are i think the answer to that is this god is teaching us that he's greater the trans the transcendent nature of god teaches us that he's greater than creation so all of that space isn't a waste all of that space is screaming out to us on our little planet god is bigger than all of that he's huge that's the point of all this creation is to tell us he's so much larger it doesn't contain him he's so much larger than you could ever imagine god is huge now if we can start rat, um, wrapping our mind around the vastness of God and how transcendent, how much greater he is than all creation, this other characteristic really, really should surprise us. Because not only is he just far more bigger than we could ever imagine, he's transcendent. He's also imminent. He's imminent, which means this. This is the teaching that God is very much closer than we could ever conceive, intimately involved in his creation. That is a juxtaposition or a, you know, a placing together of two things that are so different that highlights for us just how amazing God is and just how loving and intimately involved he is in all of his creation. And here's the kicker. You were created by God. He's intimately involved in, in your life. He decided how much hair you would have or not have. He would decide what your feet are going to look like. You may hate your feet. You may keep socks on all the time so your wife or husband doesn't see your feet. God decided what your feet are going to look like. He decided all kinds of stuff, whether you get 10 toes or not. He decided all kinds of stuff about you. He's intimately involved in exactly what you look like and all the aspects of your life, the decisions. He cares deeply, deeply about you. That vast huge God where all of creation can't even hold him is intimately involved in your life. That's amazing. That, I mean, if, somebody, if I was talking about somebody else that's intimately involved in your life, we'd be like, that's okay. God, who has the ability to create bara, which we're going to get to, out of nothing, is that intimately involved in your life. God is in your life. So these things teach us just an amazing truth about God. That he's not equal with creation. He's over all creation. And he loves us more deeply than we could ever conceive of. So the first thing that we need to see is that God is eternal and obviously intimately involved in our lives. The next thing is this. Um, In the beginning, God created. And we made a little bit of a big deal about that word a minute ago. Created. This is the Hebrew word bara. Bara. Um, There is another word that kind of is used sometimes here and there, and sometimes it's translated create, uh, yatsar. And that just means not the same as this. Yatsar means to make, to 
So it's not create, but it's to make, to form or fashion. In other words, uh, if I'm going to Yatsar or something, I have to go where there already are existing materials and take those materials, and then I can make or create a house. But I didn't create the wood that builds that house. I had to find those things somewhere. And then I made my whatever, you know. I, I, I Yatsard, but God, bara. In other words, um, he didn't have to go find the materials that were already there. He out of nothing, created the materials. Oh, we, I, I can't do that. <laughs> like, I wish I could. That would be pretty awesome. Like, you'd be the best dad ever. Bang! You know, here's, here's your surprise. But I can't do that. I have to go to, you know, Chick-fil-A to get the ice cream, to, to make their ice cream for them. You know, here it is. I don't actually get to do that, but it'd be cool if we could. Um, but my point is, is that God barras. He creates out of nothing. So the second thing that we need to observe about this is that God created everything out of nothing. He created everything out of nothing. That can only highlight for us this amazing power he has. That God is extremely powerful. Only God can create out of nothing. He didn't just create the material things that we can see. He created the immaterial things. Concepts like love or encouragement or justice or mercy. He created the spiritual domain that, that's unseen. Um, that's really the battle that's kind of going on beyond us that's more important. He created the idea of story. I mean, the, when he created, that creation is really this big thing called the meta narrative or the big story. He created the idea of story, that there's a creation and that as there's creation, there's man, and then there's a fall. And because of this fall, they're separated from God. But then here comes reconciliation through Jesus Christ, and then, or, or redemption through Jesus Christ, and then one day reconciliation. The idea of story was created by God. And everybody that writes copies this idea of story. Whether you've seen Lost, Jack Shepard is the, 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 the guy that said, or Matrix, because Keanu Reeves, everyone to this side of the bus. Like that, that right there, that's my speed guy. But all these ideas of story, or even Harry Potter. I mean, all those are just repeating creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation. The hero comes in, dies for his people, and redeems them and reconciles them back. God created that whole idea. Everybody's just repeating God. God created out of nothing everything. And all we are doing then is yatsaring everything that he's barad and forming and fashioning into things, which is good. I mean, this is a good thing. There's no mistake. Don't don't miss, like, if you just read the first chapter and the last chapter, you'll highlight, you'll, you'll really see it. But if you just go all the way through, sometimes you'll miss that there's um, man in perfect relationship with God in Genesis 1. And there's man in Revelation 21 in perfect relationship with God. But the difference is one starts in a garden and the other ends in a city. How do we get from a garden to a city? Man is obeying what God wants him to do and yatsaring and building and making a city. So God wants us to, because he's the creator, use our creativity to create Yatsar things and build. This is, um, this is good when we do that. So God created everything. Um, now the next third point is actually going to be verse 3 all the way through verse 25. We're going to kind of breeze through these days pretty fast. But you can see, and God said, let there be light, and it was good first day. And God said, let there be the expanse of the waters, and it was good the second day. Verse 9, God said, let the waters and the heavens be gathered together, and it was good the third day. It's kind of over and over. You can see that in verse 11 was the third day. Verse 14 is the fourth day and following. Verse 20 and following is the fifth day. Verse 24 and following. 
um, is, is continuation until we get to uh, verse 26, which will be our last point. But what you can see here is that um, over and over and over throughout those entire uh, verses that God's creating everything that there is. All the things that have ever and will be created were created in those six days. That's the third point is this. Everything we have, nothing came later. Everything we have was created in these six days. It's not like, oh, you know, in Exodus, God's like, I totally forgot giraffes. No one's around, right? Giraffes, like sticks them down there. That's not how it worked. The reason why is because God's not some clumsy, absent-minded creator who's kind of fumbling around and up in heaven and hoping we're not seeing it and putting on the Wizard of Oz show up here, but he's really in the back like throwing up the stuff. Like he is completely trustworthy. He's completely all-knowing. He's completely all-powerful. And everything that we would need, he created in those particular six days because he knew the crowning jewel is coming on day six, man. And everything that we would need to be, have life and be sustained and enjoy this creation was given to us in those days so that we would be taken care of forever, as long as we're here. That's what it's highlighting for us. Everything we need was given to us in those particular six days. Now, I quoted the word six days. You might be, why did he quote six days? Because, in, you know, if you're an old earth or a young earth or you're a 24-hour day or not a 24-hour day, I quoted it all so we'd all be friends. Um, so I believe that those six days are 24 hours, but you might not. So um, we're friends still. Um, but what I want to do is uh, read something to you in Matthew chapter 6. When we realize that God... Um, in the very six days, wasn't some absent-minded creator just kind of haphazardly throwing things out there, hoping that it would work, but instead had a plan from eternity past that everything that we would ever need would be given to us in those particular six days. When we realize that, we know that he is absolutely trustworthy. There's, there's nothing that we can't trust him with. So when we read in verses like Matthew 6, um, starting at verse 25, it says, to not be anxious, basically saying, you don't need to be anxious about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what, how you're going to take care of your body. Look at the birds. They don't freak out and worry like, where am I going to find my worms? Oh, no, I'm not going to find them. Like, they're never doing that. That's my bird voice. They always drive up there and they come up to the work. And God's saying, look at that. Birds are taken care of. They have bugs and seeds or whatever. And they eat it and they're taken care of. And he says, listen, if I'm going to take care of birds, are you not more valuable than birds? I mean, the answer is yes, much more valuable. Um, and we're going to see that's actually rooted in the next point that we're going to make in Genesis 1. And which of you can add, um, if which of you can, by being anxious can add a single hour to your life? God's taking care of everything you need, from food to whatever. And he makes the same argument again when he talks about flowers. And he says, um, I clothe the lilies of the field. Uh, there they are. I take care of them. If I'm going to clothe the lilies, in verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you because you're so much more important than flowers? I mean, flowers are pretty and they're good to give to your spouse on the holidays, but because you're so much more important, you don't need to have little faith or be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear because your heavenly Father knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom. You can trust him completely. And Genesis 3 those six days show us since everything we ever need that will be created was created, God knows that we can trust him. And he's telling us, you can trust me. I've given you already from the beginning, before I even created man, I gave him everything that he needs. Everything that he needs. 
So that's the third one. We have everything that we need in the six days. Therefore, he's so trustworthy. So trustworthy. The last one is uh, verse or, or number four. And I have tried to use as many synonyms as I possibly can to drive home this point. Um, you can see here, number four comes from the following verses. Let me just read number four first. It says, man is created in the image of God. And here it is. And it's the pinnacle, summit, apex, top, crown, uppermost, most important of creation. We are, without question, the most important of all creation. Now, don't miss that because God's not created. So we're not more important than God. We're just, of all creation, the most important. Look what it says here in verse 26. We're going to see why we're the most important. Verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Nothing in creation is made in the image of God besides us. Which means we have some similarities to God. We're not God by any means, but we're rational. We can think. We can be kind. We can be gracious. All these things are, are, are God. Um, so we are made in the likeness or in the image of God. Nothing else that's ever been created is made in the image of God besides man. Therefore, we're vastly more important. You can see here right after that, he talks about how um, important we are. Let them have dominion. I mean, that means they're in charge. Outside of God, they're in charge. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock of all the earth. So fish and eat. Shoot deer and eat. You know what I mean? This is what he's saying. Shoot the doves and eat them. Don't just shoot them and throw them in the woods and say, I have dominion. Ah, you know, that's not the point. It's actually, they're there for us to have and be sustained in life and enjoy. They're there that as we eat them, we realize that these are good gifts from God. I'm not saying if you're a vegetarian, like you're out of the will of God. I'm just saying you're missing out on a good cheeseburger every once in a while. He's given it to us because he wants us to realize that he supplied all these things for us and they don't have souls and we do and they are for our enjoyment, not just as pets, but also for consumption. You know, we wouldn't, some we eat and some we don't, depending on the country you live in. Um, but the next point that drives home this pinnacle, this apex of man is verse 27. So God created in his own image and the image of God, he created them. Male and fail, he created them. So he gave us male and female, still created in his image. Look at verse 28. Nowhere else is all creation said, and God blessed them. We receive a blessing from the Lord. Plants didn't receive the blessing. Deer didn't receive the blessing. Man received the blessing. And then the very first command he gave us, all, there, it was, didn't come in Exodus 20 where he gave us the Ten Commandments. The very first command, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Have babies, obviously within the confines of marriage, but still, he, he blesses them and wants us to have children. Down to verse 31, um, this is another way we can see that man is the crowning apex of all creation. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was, what does it say? Very good. Now, if you flip back, you'll see that all the other days end with good. But when he created man, he said it's very good. And he wasn't just looking for an extra adjective that day. Ah, what do I write? Very good. Like, that's purposeful. That's for us to see all these other things in creation are good. But man is very good, better than the rest of creation because they're the crowning apex, because they're actually made in the image of and the likeness of God. And so man is the crowning um, pinnacle of creation. Now, based on those four things we have seen there, there's a couple applications that I think are very helpful. Um, 
if we just take the doctrine of creation kind of right there, and we're like, all right, so let's pray. I think that maybe we're kind of left wanting, what do I do then? How does, how does this affect me on this coming Wednesday when I have a test? Or how does this affect me when my child won't listen? Or how does it affect me whenever I'm not trusting that this thing's going to happen? Or how does this affect me for the occupation that I need to go into? Or how does this affect me whenever there's a temptation that comes and I need to decide whether I should indulge in it or not indulge in it? How does the doctrine of creation inform those things? I want to give you some, some handles here to understand that the doctrine of creation is not just some kind of scientific thing we put on the shelf, we look at it, we think it's great, but it doesn't inform everyday life. It actually informs everyday life very well. Um, the first one is the doctrine of creation, specifically that it was done by a personate, infinite God, gives us hope. It gives us hope. Um, we know from the doctrine of creation that we are created by God, who loves us, who has a purpose for us, and gives us hope. An atheist who doesn't hold in, in, um, a, into a God that's creating, this is what he says, Richard Dawkins quoted on talking about um, if I don't believe that there's a God that created, the logical understanding that I should have then is unyielding despair, which he agrees with. He's like, right, if God didn't create, then nothing has purpose. And the only right logical feeling for me to feel is unyielding despair. This is what Richard Dawkins said. If somebody feels depressed about there being no creator, that's their problem. Maybe the logic is that if there's no creator, is yields to un unyielding despair. He said, maybe the logic is deeply pessimistic. The universe is bleak, cold, and empty. But so what? <laughs> no, thank you. I do not want to live a life of unyielding despair. What's the point? And he's, he, he says, you're right. If there is no in, um, infinite personal creator, then life really has no purpose. It's bleak, it's cold, and so, but Christians, since we do know, not just believe, but know that there is a personal God that created, we have hope. We don't live life of despair like the atheist. We have a deep hope because we know that there is a God that loves us and created us and has a purpose for us. The next thing about creation, the next application is that it teaches us, creation teaches us to have a good balance between false asceticism, I'm going to explain that, and false worship. Asceticism is this. Um, asceticism is, okay, there's creation, but wow, there's so many sins to be doing in the creation. So the best thing for me to do is just never be involved in creation. I'm going to come over here. I'm going to not have anything nice. I'm going to wear bad clothes. I'm never going to eat because I might enjoy it. So I'm going to fast all the time, get really super skinny, and not enjoy anything in creation because anytime I indulge in it, there's a really big, good possibility that I'm going to sin. So instead, I'm going to get away from it and be an ascetic. And that's where monasteries and things like that come from. Um, this is not a, a, a Christian way to think about creation. Like if I gave my child a present, a, a new bike, if I gave my child said, here's a new bike, I, w I would be kind of upset if they said, no, dad, don't give me the bike. I might enjoy it. I might enjoy riding it. I might like being on it. So never going to touch it, never going to use it. Instead, I I'm going to throw it away and stay over here in my room and never even think about bikes. Like we don't do that, right? God gave us creation and he says here it is it's a gift enjoy it and christians and non-christians all get to enjoy creation so a right view of creation keeps us from false asceticism in that when he gives it to us believers or unbelievers we can enjoy a good steak 
We can enjoy a good drink. We can enjoy marriage and all the pleasures that marriage brings. Everybody gets to enjoy that. And these are all good. We can enjoy a good book. Like all these things are good gifts that creation gives to it, that God has given to us through creation for us to participate and be involved in, but not in a sinful way. Okay? But we shouldn't run from creation because it's a father who loves you deeply that gave it to you and says, look what I've given to you. Enjoy this. Think of a gift from dad that he wants me to enjoy, but your heavenly father. So it keeps us from that, but also the opposite side, a, a right understanding of creation, keeps us from false worship. Romans 1 tells us that what happened, the problem in Romans 1, is that people, as God gave them these created things, they, they were so enamored and so in love with the, the created things, whatever you want it to be, whatever it is, they loved them so much that they actually worshiped those things, and they lifted those things up as what they worship and not God. And so a right understanding of creation makes us not run away from creation, but also keeps us from not lifting high and enjoying too deeply and worshiping the things of creation. That's not right either. All these things that he gives us, food, um, marriage, all these things he gives us, the Christian under, understanding is, as he gives us those things, we're so thankful for them that we press through those things. These things are not ends, but they're means that take us to the person that created those, namely God, and we give him all the worship for them. So a right understanding of creation keeps us from false asceticism and lets us understand how to really worship God. It keeps us from false worship. It doesn't terminate on a created thing. Anything created is going to be a crummy God. Anything. Not a crummy person or a crummy object, but a crummy God. You can use your iPhone. Um, you can enjoy your wife. But all those things are not God. And they make crummy gods. Your wife will let you down. Your husband will let you down. Always. Not on purpose. Not intentionally, maybe. But not on purpose. They're not your God. God is your God. Those are gifts to you to enjoy. So it keeps us from those. The third thing, and this definitely applies to you, not to me. Um, I wish it would. I just can't think this way. Um, a right understanding of creation encourages Christians to be in the sciences. It doesn't keep Christians from running away from the sciences. It encourages Christians to be in the sciences because since God created all and he included the concept of science and everything inside of science, Christians should not flee from science thinking there's somehow some separation. Instead, we are the only ones that have the correct worldview on how to understanding. We should be actively involved in helping humanity understand the sciences more fully. I think that's a great application for those that think that we have to run away from trying to be Christians in the, sci in the worlds of sciences. We need, we're desperate for, Christians given real understanding and voices on how to understand God. I mean, when you look at all this vastness of creation and the intricate involvement that he is, and you look at things, that should make you say, there has to be a creator. I mean, a baby grew inside of someone. There has to be a creator. Like, you, you have a baby in you. There's a person. That's crazy. That should only lead you to say, there must be a God. That's amazing. Um, the next one is, it reminds us, a right understanding of the creation is that God created all this. And so since God created all this, he calls the shots, he barad, he created everything out of nothing. And since he created everything out of nothing, 
only he is the one that rules and reigns over all of it all. No one else gets to be in charge of it. There's not like a second guy, VP, that he's just kind of hoping one day he'll get to be in charge if it ever, he decides to retire or something like that. God is the ruler and reigner forever and ever and ever, which means if he's sovereign over everything created and you're created, he's the sovereign over you. So every decision, every choice, everything you do um, should fall under his rule and under his authority. Not as some kind of mean autocrat who's out to get you and say, do my way, but because no one loves you more than him. No one wants your best. No one deeply desires you. No one gives you more grace. No one gives you more mercy in the person of Jesus than God. So it reminds us that he's Lord over us. And here's the last one. Um, And I just think this is important, especially in this day and age, where sometimes you hear kooky stuff that people say that are Christians um, about creation. We should steward creation. We, just should, we should take care of it. If we have a right understanding of it, God, that he gave it to us as a gift, Christians should be leading the way in taking care of the earth. Leading the way. Because we understand it's not just some haphazard cluster of cells and blob that was randomly put together, but that our Lord gave it to us as a gift, and he wants us to enjoy it. And when we give gifts... We want people to take care of it. It's not like they give us a gift and we're like, oh, whatever. Wham! That's a nice gift. Like, we want them to take care of it. Wouldn't that be terrible? Someone ripped open a nice, you know, ring or something and just threw it against the wall? Like, we should be leading the way. I mean, a small little way is we should recycle, right? We should recycle. We should. Don't make that a rule. Remedy Church does not come into your house and looking at your cycle bins. That's not a new legalistic rule of remedy to be a member. You have to recycle. But we should, we should steward our, our, our stuff and recycle. Like, that's just one easy thing. If you're not a recycler, okay. But you should steward creation. If anybody that should steward it, it should be us. Um, I want to conclude with this. As we understand the doctrine of creation, Ben, in the very beginning, read a verse um, in 2 Corinthians. And I think this is the best way for us to understand. As we understand, over here is creation. As we understand creation, um, that it was created bara, ex nihilo. That here is where nothing existed and all of a sudden God, barad, created everything that there ever was in six days. Paul's looking back at the doctrine of creation and he's going to relate the doctrine of creation to man's salvation. And he's going to say they're the same thing. They're the same thing. So a good understanding of creation helps us understand just how glorious it is and amazing it is to be saved. Because it's the same way. Look what he says. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Those are words referencing back to creation. He's saying there was nothing, and then all of a sudden he created everything. And he said, just as God created Bahrad, let light shine out of darkness, he says, he has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just like there was nothing, and all of a sudden there was everything, in the same way salvation, there was nothing in us that wanted God. There was nothing in us that found him special. There was nothing in us that saw him as beautiful. And he shone the light into us and created Bahrad, faith, in us to see Christ as beautiful, to understand what Christ did for us on the cross. He created that out of nothing, a deep love to go back to Christ. He relates our salvation to creation in saying, 
God loved you with such an unbelievable love, if you're in Christ, that he borrowed your salvation out of nothing. Nothing in you wanted him. And then he gave you that. And now, as response, all you want to do is give back to him all the glory because you can't believe he would do that. You willingly had chosen the path of hell and condemnation. And you would have continued on that path had he not come and borrowed into your heart created a deep love for Christ. To see this, this is what he said, that we can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God specifically in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, the precious faces of our Savior. Precious face of our Savior. What a beautiful idea. Ex nihilo in our hearts created salvation for us. So every Christian in this room, the doctrine of creation, teaches you to understand your salvation even better. That you are on a path towards no love for him whatsoever. And he created it in you. And you willingly said, you chose that, no question. You willingly said as he created that, yes, I want it. No question at all. Now here's the thing. If you're not in Christ, don't say, well, I guess I'm out on that. (laughs) No. If you are not in Christ and you're hearing this and you're saying, but I want that. I think those are the flickers. I think it's only a matter of time. All you have to do then is say, yes, forgive me, Lord, for my sin. I confess it. And Jesus' death on the cross, that should have been mine. I trust that that was mine. He receives all my punishment and all his perfection since he lived a perfect life are given to me. Therefore, now I'm counted completely righteous, completely forgiven. If you are saying, well, that sounds good and I want it, then I'm saying, then trust Christ today. And if you do, then this is the absolute verse that's happened in your heart as well. And that gives us all reason to celebrate our own salvation and anybody that trusts Christ this morning. We rejoice that that, that's happened in your life. Yes, God, thank you for saving someone else. You pull them off a pathway towards hell and set them to, to set their face on Christ. We have great reason to worship. So the conclusion for us all is worship. And if you're not in Christ, trust Christ today. We're going to... Uh, Worship God in a few ways here now. Two ways which are coming are through the Lord's Supper and through worship through song. And so we're going to have a song that's going to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper Supper is where we come to remember what Christ has done for us. The bread symbolizes Christ's broken body for us on the cross um, where it should have been us. The blood for us symbolizes his shed blood so that we can be forgiven for our sins. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it tells us not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, which means as you come to the table, come with a thankful heart, realizing your only hope is Christ. So you're going to have a few minutes during this song to think and pray and reflect. Prepare your heart to say, Christ is my all in all. I have no other hope besides him. And then as you're ready, you can come forward and get both elements, or you can go to the back. There's a place in the back. And just come back to, to your seat. And then um, after the song's over, I'll come up and I'll lead us in a time of the Lord's Supper together. So as you're ready, um, listen to the song, reflect, think, and pray. Come forward and get the elements and come back to your seat. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful and thankful for creation. And like all doctrines, creation's no, no different. 
it pushes us and reminds us to know who you are and to be amazed at who you are and thankful for that you would give us Christ. You'd put forward your only son to die for us on the cross. Be with us now as we participate in the Lord's Supper and we remember what you've done for us. May our hearts be filled with worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.